is this what happens? Is this what happens when the people of Beth Shemesh open the ark? And probably not. Um, anyway, funny fact about that movie, uh, even if you haven't seen it, I'm going to give you a big spoiler. In fact, it was Big Bang Theory that uh, pointed this out. Uh, if Indiana Jones had done absolutely nothing, the end result would have been exactly the same. All right? Like, the Nazis still would have captured the ark, and they still would have died, and that would have been still the same ending. So the whole point of the movie is pointless. That was a yeah, funny fact. Um, it got a lot of things wrong, obviously. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you one thing it did get right. And that is, throughout this whole thing and, and that movie that depicted it, the ark of the covenant it takes care of itself, right? It takes care of itself. It didn't need Indiana Jones. And certainly in 1 Samuel, it doesn't need God's people, the Israelites. In fact, all throughout this ark narrative of 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, and we're kind of coming to the end of it, the ark takes care of itself. And it's not because of the ark. It's not some magical box like in that movie. It's because the ark symbolized Israel's God, Yahweh. And he is not like other gods. He takes care of himself. Remember last week, Dagon, the Philistine god, not only falls at Yahweh's feet, he had to be lifted up after he fell because he doesn't take care of himself, but God does. And in 1 Samuel 6 that we just read, God is still a God that you cannot contain, you cannot domesticate, and you cannot manipulate. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. And we will see how this God will actually make his own way. And he doesn't need anyone to help. Now, that's not just an amusing story from 3,000 years ago. This actually, this news I want to suggest to you today is actually both liberating and challenging for those of us who hear it today. I'm going to pray and let's get into it. Father God, thank you for your word that 3,000 years later remains so relevant. Help us to understand and see, challenge us so that we might come to know you better today. And our lives might be changed by that. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got uh, four points. The first is the problem of the glory of God. So let me read again from the first few verses there for you on the outline, I mean on the overhead. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. Um, so this picks up after the end of last week's passage. Um, you remember the ark was in Philistine territory. It tells us only seven months. But as we saw last week, it was a national disaster. I mean, not only did Dagon fall before it in the temple, but they were afflicted so badly with disease and plague and tumors that basically every city the ark had been in was set, uh, sent into a deathly panic. The, the phrase is actually literally a panic of death. There was mayhem, there was pandemonium. I don't know if you would cast your mind back to early 2020, right, when we were just hearing rumors of this thing called COVID. And then slowly we were getting rumors that Australians had been afflicted, right? Now, there was a bit of a low-level panic at that time. But then came March, early March, and we started hearing about super spreader events. And they were all weddings. Do you remember that? And guess what? One of the sweat couples from Bankstown had their wedding. Middle of March. And they had relatives from Asia where there was like an outbreak. I can tell you as a pastor, I was freaking out. I was thinking this is no low-level no low panic anymore, right? 
Um, thankfully, no one got COVID at that event, even though there was like no masks and no social distancing. It wasn't a super spreader event. But imagine if there was like, imagine if there were no interventions. Like imagine if the borders were not closed, there were no lockdowns, and there wasn't even any medical, medical info, right? To, to kind of dispel the, the, the rumors versus the truth. Just people getting sick, just people going to hospital, just people dying. Imagine if that was the case. There would be a panic of death. It'd be like one of those, you know, zombie movies, right? Where people are just freaking out. And that's kind of what was going on in the Philistine lands as the ark was doing all of this. And so they decided at the end of last chapter, we've got to get rid of this ark. We can't take it. It was a poison chalice. But you see, the, uh, the Philistine priests and the diviners, um, probably they're just like shamans or witch doctors, um, you know, and they're especially there to try and discern, figure out the will of the gods. But they had no idea what to do. So they thought, okay, we'll send the ark back, but we've got to have a gift along with it, um, a gift that was more than just a gift. It was supposed to be like um, a payback offering, a guilt offering, a restitution offering. And so they decided to be five gold tumors and five gold rats. Kind of strange, but it might be a hint that the tumors that we read about in last chapter could have been something like the plague, like the bubonic plague, which, you know, was spread by rats. So maybe that's why the tumors and the rats. And with these golden gifts, which would have cost a lot because they're made out of gold, they're going to send the ark back. But note this line, perhaps he, that's God, Yahweh, will lift his hand or literally lighten his hand from you and your gods and your land. Um, That lighten his hands is a bit of a, a dig because last chapter, you remember, we kept reading that Yahweh's hand was heavy, right? The heavy hand of God on the Philistines. And of course, you'll remember what Pastor Marshall said, that the word for heavy in Hebrew is basically the word for glory. So they're praying that God would lighten his hands because God's hand was just too glorious for them to take. He hopes that this gesture will take that glory away from them. So glory is not always a good thing when his hand is against you. But then the thing to note is, of course, the perhaps. Perhaps. We hope. Maybe. They, they just didn't know. They, they hoped for the best. And it kind of reminded me that early on in the COVID thing, there were actually some crazy supposed cures, including this, virus shutout necklaces. Apparently, you just wear them and you won't get COVID. These had to be systematically banned from the countries that started selling them. Okay? Because you just... There were just rumors. They were like, they, it just didn't work. And that was what they were trying to do, hoping for the best. With the gold offering, they were trying to repay a debt. They were trying to appease God. But how do you repay a debt that you can't assess? How do you appease a God that you do not know? All right? It was ignorance mixed with desperation. How do you repay a debt that you can't assess, how do you appease a God that you do not know? And by the way, I can't help but think how this really is the situation of so many billions of people around the world. Uh, we, we talk at SWEC a lot about unreached people groups, yeah? Unreached people groups, they're all the red dots. They have their witch doctors and priests and shamans, they're trying to repay a debt they cannot assess to appease a God that they don't know. We read in Acts 17 how the Apostle Paul was in Athens and he saw there an altar that had the label, an altar to an unknown God. 
because in their ignorance and desperation, they want to make sure they want to make sure they had their bases covered. But it was tragic, wasn't it? And he had to go and tell them. Well, you see these unreached people groups, 3.4 billion people, nearly half of the world are unreached. If only someone could show them, if only someone could tell them about the God they don't know, about the debt that they cannot assess. Well, that's really the heartbeat of mission, isn't it? And that's why we at SWEC want to keep praying for our missionaries and we keep sending Well, back to 1 Samuel. In verses 7 to 9, we won't read again. They send the ark back, but notice they set it up, right? Um, Just in case it was all a chance thing. (laughs) They set it up. So they get two mother cows, two mummy cows that have never been yoked together. They've never pulled a cart together. And then they separate these mummy cows from the baby calves. And then they let it go just to see where it goes. See, they did this because it had, in human terms, every chance of failure, Right? The mummy cows had never been yoked together before, so they've never practiced pulling a cart together. Right? That generally means they'll just you know, go crazy. But then also, they separated from their babies. So these mummy cows, by instinct, will want to go straight back to their baby calves. Right? And, and so they're, they're trying to do this so that if the cart did make it back to Israel, it had to be the hand of God directing. Okay? You see, this is what they're doing? Not some accident. Okay, so what happens? Uh, this is my second point, the return of the glory of God. Um, let's keep reading verse 10. So they did this with a whole cart and cow set up. They took two such cows, hitched them to the cart, penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. That is no mistake. A divine hand was directing the cart. It was directing the, the cows. That's why they were like mooing the whole way. It was almost like they were forced to go that way because it went exactly where God had intended. And everything here is supposed to work out like this because it echoes another great departure from captivity into promised land, right? What am I talking about? It echoes, well, the Exodus, doesn't it? In fact, that's what the Philistines themselves have said. They said, why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when Israel's God dealt harshly with them? Did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Even the Philistines saw the connection between the cart going by, the ark going back, and the Exodus events. Um, and just to point out that verses one to nine are kind of full of Exodus echoes. Um, let me give you three more. Um, number one, they 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 keep talking about sending away the ark, right? Sending away the ark. That's exactly the language used when Pharaoh sends Israel away from Egypt, or when Moses says, "Let my people go." Literally let my people or send my people away. Same phrase. And of course, this is all happening after a plague, or in the case of the Exodus, after 10 plagues. Um, And then the next point, um, do not send it away empty, verse 3, the priest and the diviners said. Now that's exactly what God had said would happen when Israel left Egypt, that they would not go empty-handed, right? But the Egyptians would give them all their gold and silver. That's what they did as they left Egypt. 
the Philistine land, the Philistines deliberately gave them these gold things. And then thirdly, all of this um, is intended, the, the whole ark thing, so that the Philistines would know. Okay, They keep saying, if you do this, then you will know. If you do this, then you will know. Well, that knowing language is also from the Exodus. God did all of that in the Exodus so that everyone, Pharaoh included, the Israelites included, in fact, the whole world would know his power. Okay, so here we've got essentially like a new exodus. Just to show you on the map, this is where we are going. See, the very way that the cart with the ark made its way to Beth Shemesh and it didn't like go to the left or the right, just went straight through. It's a bit like a driverless car, I imagine, with the GPS route mapped out. It just goes exactly where it's supposed to go because God directed his glory back through the wilderness, back to the promised land. Now, hundreds of years later, there would once again be a captivity, another exile, except it's not just the ark. In fact, by that time, possibly the ark was destroyed. But the whole nation of Israel would go into captivity. But then another exodus would be spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And I want to quote this because it actually, what it says here about what God would do to lead his people back Sort of sounds like what he did with the ark here in 1 Samuel 6. Um, it says here, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's kind of what the ark did. It's just like a straight path right through. Every valley will be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You remember the end of chapter 4 of 1 Samuel? As Eli, the old priest, the old blind priest's uh, daughter-in-law was giving birth and the baby was born and she died as she was giving birth and the baby was called Ichabod. Right? The whole name is symbolic, of course. The main name means where is the glory or the glory is gone. Well, now we've got the reverse of Ichabod. See what happens with the glory? Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The ark is back. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Um, The large rock, the Hebrew word for a rock is eben. Now, you remember where they lost the ark was at a place called Ebenezer, which means a stone of help or rock of help, right? It's a bit of a reverse. It gets lost at an Eben. It comes back to an Eben. Also, um, we don't know anything about Joshua of Beth Shemesh, but his name's Joshua. That's supposed to echo what happened when Israel went back into the land under the leadership of Joshua. You see, like we saw back in chapter 5 last week, God is zealous for his own glory. God will make a way. Now, when I spoke about the unreached people groups of the world, 3.4 billion, you know, the task of unreached people groups seems so great. Even if we mobilized more people to reach them, it just seems mind-boggling how they could even be reached. And I'll tell you one way that God is doing it supernaturally did you know that um, 20, about 20, they, they think it's about 25% of Muslims, especially Muslims in unreached places, 
25% of them coming to faith is actually through dreams and visions. Did you know that? It's not just one of those, you know, odd, uh, odd reports here and there. It actually is something that people keep hearing about. Missionaries keep hearing about. Churches keep hearing about. Muslims coming to faith in Jesus because they've had a dream or a vision. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible and hearing about Jesus is not important. In fact, the reason why missionaries find out about it is because after they have dreams and visions, they often go and find churches and find Christians, and that's how they hear about it. Um, and then they hear the gospel. But the point is this, that actually even, even in places where you think nothing is happening or we can't get there, or God is actually in charge, isn't he? He's in charge of people's salvation. Now, he uses us, and that's the normal way he does it. But he doesn't have to all the time. And even when we don't think anything is happening, God may be doing something like that in an invisible, supernatural way, bringing people to Jesus. Now, if that's the, tr- if that's the case in unreached places, well, how much more so the people that you might think nothing is happening with? I mean, think about the people who are unbelievers in your own family that you're trying to reach, right? And you think, I've been praying for them, I've been trying so hard. Nothing seems to be happening. Their heart seems to be so hard. They want nothing to do with Jesus. Or they've heard it a thousand times and nothing's stirring. Well, don't give up praying, will you? Because even when we think nothing is happening, God makes a way. So keep praying. Okay, third point. The problem of the glory of God. Now, this is not a typo because we'll see that the glory of God is not just a problem for the Philistines. It's actually a problem for God's own people as well. This is how the... uh, the story concludes, but God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand up in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. Um, you see what they're doing? They're hot potatoing the Ark just like the Philistines did last chapter. Right? They don't know what to do with it either. And, and so this is the tragedy. God's own people, the Israelites, are just almost just as ignorant as the Philistines were. Because God's glory is no more comfortable and containable for His people than it is for their enemies. And at verse 19, where it's got highlighted the heavy blow, that's the same phrase used of the great slaughter or the heavy blow they experienced back in chapter 4 when they lost the ark. Right? They hadn't learned their lesson is the point. Remember the lesson from two weeks ago that you cannot contain, you cannot domesticate, you cannot manipulate a God like that. And it's good to be reminded of that, isn't it? When it comes to us. So my final point, let's apply it. Have you ever thought about why God, and we're talking about today, we're talking about for us, why God chose to save us the way he did, right? Why God chooses that the path of the way of salvation is the way it is. Why why does he do that? Because it's the same lesson that he's trying to make from 1 Samuel 6, that his glory's return, remember, the ark's return was 100% him, and it's 100% not what's expected. And that's actually how he works salvation for us today. 
Because the true fulfillment of that new exodus, the, the Isaiah new exodus that I put up before on the screen, the true fulfillment of that is, of course, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear the echoes of Isaiah 40 when Jesus came on the scene and John the Baptist came on the scene and it was the voice calling out in the wilderness, right? It's fulfilled in Jesus. It's through the good news of Jesus that that great final exodus happened. And it's actually the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that answers the question that the Philistines and, in a sense, the Israelites didn't know the answer to. Remember the question is, how do you repay a debt you cannot assess to appease a God you do not know? They couldn't answer that in 1 Samuel 6, but the good news of Jesus does answer it. Right? What is the debt that we owe God? How do you repay it? Who is this God that we're trying to be right with? And how do we be right with Him? Well, the gospel answers it. And the answer is 100% unexpected because it's God's way. So what's God's way of salvation? Let me put up what may be a familiar passage with us. And we're going to sit here for a little bit. Look what Ephesians 2 says. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I remember the question? The debt you cannot assess a God you do not know. Well, what does this show us? Firstly, it shows us what God is like. This is a God you can know, and the gospel reveals God in all of his glory, that he is full of love. He is rich in mercy. He is incomparably gracious and kind. And we see his kindness because the debt we owe Right, is to remain dead in our transgressions, as Ephesians teaches us. And if we remain dead in our transgressions, that's eternal death bound for hell. Right, 1 Samuel 6, verse 20, remember the people of Israel said, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, the holy God? Right, when you understand that that is our debt before God, it's eternal death in transgressions. But then, look what God does, because He is a God rich in mercy incomparably gracious and kind. Well, God, through Jesus, pays that for us. Our debt, in our place, so that we can be right with Him. We can stand before a holy God in His presence. And so you see this new exodus, this new way of salvation carved out for His people, revealed in Jesus, is God doing it His way. And His way is unexpected because His way is What's the key word in this passage? Grace. Grace, it's undeserved. You see, every other religion in the world is some form of salvation by merit, isn't it? Salvation by works. But the gospel alone, the Christian gospel alone, the, alone out of all the religions of the world is grace. It's so different. It's so unexpected. If you had to invent a religion, a way of being right to, with God, you bet it's going to be the way of every other religion. You've got to earn your way to Him. But God says, no, nah, that's not my way. My way is grace. 
Now, why does he do it that way? By grace. Yes, it's for us. But ultimately, he does it this way because it's for his glory. Remember, that's been the big lesson in 1 Samuel. It's for his glory. You know, in the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, there's been, there's five alone words, five solas. The sola is in Latin. You've got grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone. And why? It's for the glory of God alone. You see, any other way that God, any other way that God might have chosen to save us except by the way of grace would rob God of his glory. That's the way he chose it to do it ultimately. Now we have lots of people with Catholic backgrounds come to join us for church and we love that because we worship the same God, we confess the same ancient creeds, we read the same Bible. But let me do spell out a key difference. You see, the Reformation, the reason why we're Protestants, is about going back to what the Bible says about this way of salvation that God outlines. And it's in answer to this question, the question is this, can we contribute anything to our salvation? Can we contribute anything to our salvation? And here's the big difference. Catholics and Protestants answer that differently. Can we contribute anything to our salvation? The the Catholic answer is actually, yes, we can. In fact, yes, we must. Because we must add to our faith the performance of the sacraments or receiving the sacraments. We must add to our faith the evidence of good works. And only then can we be saved. That is the Catholic answer. But the Reformation pointed out that no, we can't, that we can't, we do not contribute anything to our salvation. You hear that? In fact, let me go back to Martin Luther, the, um, the former Catholic monk who started the Reformation a year after he penned the 95 Theses and stuck it to the university chapel door. Um, he was in this big debate called the Heidelberg Disputation. If you've ever been to the town of Heidelberg, it's actually a really pretty university town. And these are some of the articles of his Heidelberg Disputation. Look at it, number 18. It is certain that man and by man, he means men and women, must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. Article 25. He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. 26. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. See? Can we contribute anything to our salvation? The gospel, the Bible actually says no. In fact, the faith that we operate, the faith that we exercise itself that secures our salvation, the Bible says that's not a work, that's not merit. (laughs) Because faith is just receiving, receiving the gift that God holds out. Faith despairs of ourselves. It throws ourselves onto God and Jesus alone. Faith itself is not a work. You can't take credit for that. And actually, to go a step further, you know the Bible says that even the faith, in fact, Jesus says this, even the faith that you exercise to trust in Jesus, even that's not from you. That God has to supernaturally work in your heart first for you to even have that faith. 
Because remember Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sin. Our dead people can't contribute anything. But let me take it even a step further behind that. This means that those who are saved are only saved because God chose them to be saved. Independent of their goodness or worthiness or even their ability to decide to choose him. Ephesians chapter 1, which I won't put up on the screen, says we were chosen before the creation of the world. Now, I know this is making you uncomfortable because we've just, we've just ventured into the, the, the territory of, of, of election, of predestination. And I'm not going to argue it here, chat to me afterwards, but I want you to know it's thoroughly biblical. But why are we uncomfortable with that? We're uncomfortable. Ultimately, we don't like it because it's actually saying we contribute nothing to our salvation. That if you are saved, even the decision to be saved is not ultimately yours. You see that what I'm saying? That God needs to awaken your heart before you can even respond to his free gift of salvation. Does that make you uncomfortable? Good. Because what have we learned from 1 Samuel chapter 6? That God makes a way through the wilderness. He does it His way. Why? Because He is passionate for His glory. Any other way. And we actually steal some glory from God. We can say, well, I'm saved because I chose God. Because of my good works. Or because I responded. Because I had faith. And God says, no. I'm going to save you in a way that thoroughly strips you of any credit so that you would know it's from me and only from me because of my grace and my glory. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not sure, this is the good news. I I know it's uncomfortable, but it's also wonderful, isn't it? Because if it's not from you, Ultimate, then no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you may have never walked into church or watched us online until today. You didn't know the Ten Commandments. If you knew them, you'd broke them all. doesn't matter what you've done. The good news is you can be saved, right? This is what it means. You have no faith background whatsoever. It doesn't matter because it's not from you anyway. You just need to come to Jesus, And if you have Jesus, you can have eternal life. That's simple. Right? If you need to talk to someone about it, myself, Pastor Marshall, would love to talk to you today. If you are a follower of Jesus, again, uncomfortable, but wonderful truth. You see, if salvation didn't depend on your good works, not even ultimately on your faith, and certainly not on the strength of your will, but if God saved you, when he knew how broken and sinful you would be, then do you think anyone or anything can ever take that salvation away from you? See what I mean? See, if it at all depends on you, then you could lose it. But if it ultimately is about God, then not your sin before you came to faith can take it away. Not your sin after you came to faith can take it away. Not your currently weak and wavering faith. Not your lack of good works. Not when you fail to stand up and speak up for Jesus. Not your depression. Not your fears. No spiritual forces of evil. Nothing at all can take away those whom God has chosen to save. Because He did it. 
and he's going to do it. Right? And he will not let you go. Nothing can take you away from his secure and loving arms. So what are you going to do, Christian, when you do sin? What are you going to do when you are afraid? What are you going to do when you feel distant from God or too ashamed? What are you going to do when you're confronted with his glory as you are today? Well, run to Jesus, right? Run to Jesus. If you have sins or fears, confess it to him and be assured because it's his way for his glory by grace alone. You are his forever. That's good news, isn't it? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that by your mercy and grace and your death for us, and even before the creation of the world, your choice of us and your work in us that is completely 100% you. Just pray that today we might leave that, even if uncomfortable, we might leave that with great assurance so that we would know that those whom you've chosen, you will never let go. And help those here who aren't sure of where they stand with you to run to Jesus today and find that assurance that you want to give them. In Jesus' name, amen.